This is episode three of the Mind Mission Podcast. I am your host, Derek Davis, and I am grateful to have each and every one of you tuning in for episode three. Episode three for you Star Wars fans, this is the Revenge of the Sith episode. The the Alan Iverson the podcast episodes. The Larry Bird from Behind the Arc pull up and hit the three episode. I'm just excited to be here with you all. So I want to paint a word picture for you. Right now I am recording episode three down here in the man cave over here on the east side of Columbus. I've got a 4K outer space video playing in the background. I just hung up some LED light strips. I got the the red LED lights on. No other lights, just the LED strip. I got the Bath and Body Works mahogany teakwood high intensity candle lit tonight. I don't mess around with the regular intensity. For the Mind Mission podcast, we go all the way up to the high intensity. And I know what you're wondering. Is it the three wick candle? Absolutely. You know we're using three wicks for episode three. I've got some nice orange spice tea in the mug. We have finalized our board of directors for my mission. There's 12 of us total coming from different specialties, different backgrounds. We've got some psychiatric nurse practitioners. We have some licensed social workers. We've got the Ohio chapter director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We've got a former CrossFit champion on the board. So we, we've got an incredible bunch the most important thing is these people are dedicated to serving others. They're passionate about mental health. And we are excited to begin planning our community programs as we move forward with my mission. And as I've said on other episodes, my mission, we are a nonprofit here in Columbus, Ohio, whose mission is to promote mental health awareness through fitness and adventure to foster community, and to provide resources. So as we get started with episode three here, I just feel like I need to acknowledge that this is the first episode of 2021. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say, good riddance 2020. I am excited to turn the page on that year and I'm feeling very optimistic that this year is going to be infinitely better than that year that we all just encountered together. Now, I think the first sign that 2021 is going to be so much better than 2020 is that the Cleveland Browns, the laughing stock of the NFL over the past two decades, basically, have just made the playoffs for the first time in 18 seasons. Now, what you're thinking, Derek, shouldn't we just celebrate this being a great year 
only if the Browns were to win the Super Bowl. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the real you know, sign that 2021 is going to be a phenomenal year? And to that, I say, no, no, absolutely not. I wish that as a Browns fan that the expectation and the, the, the ultimate goal every year was to win a Super Bowl. And for so many teams, that is the ultimate goal, to win the Super Bowl. And, you know, my life personally, you know, I always, I want to strive to be the best, you know, to, to win the Super Bowl of, you know, whatever I'm trying to accomplish, so to speak. But as a Browns fan, sadly, the expectations are not always to win the Super Bowl. And when you go 18 years without making the playoffs, just the act of making the playoffs speaks to that this was a successful season and that 2021 is our year. And, you know, you don't have to be a Browns fan to to take part in this. I I think the entire country, the entire world can just share in this beautiful time that the Cleveland Browns finished with a winning record and that they are in the NFL playoffs. So hello, 2021. Let's get it going here. And with that, I want to segue into a section of the podcast where I share some research topics in the mental health field. And this one counts for some researchers um, that are part of a group called the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Uh, This is a nonprofit, and I'm going to read you their mission statement here. So their mission, it states, the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation is committed to alleviating the suffering caused by mental illness by awarding grants that will lead to advances and breakthroughs in scientific research. And why I think this organization is so, so special, so important is, you know, the field of mental health is in its infancy, really, there, there's so much more we have to learn about the brain, about human behavior, about mental illnesses and suicide that you know, we really are in the very early stages of understanding. So I think whenever we can highlight research, you know, it can create some optimism and, you know, really hope in, in people out there. So this research study was done uh, there's two lead doctors here. We've got Dr. Amit Etkin, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford, and Dr. Trevidi, who is looks like a professor of psychiatry at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm reading from the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation website, and I'll make sure I post this study in this research article in the show notes here. But I'm looking at the title... And the title is Brain Wave EEG Signature Robustly Predicted Antidepressant Response. And before we get into that, I just want to share some, some of my thoughts on where we are in the mental health care field, uh, just based on some of my experiences personally and, and kind of what I've what I've noticed. And I know I've said it before on other podcasts, but um, you know, I am not a licensed mental health professional. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to play one. So these are just, you know, my own opinions here. But 
in my own experiences, when I've gone to, you know, a psychiatrist, uh, my family doctor, to counselors, you know, being diagnosed, it doesn't feel to be as accurate as other forms of other types of illnesses as far as when you get diagnosed with a mental illness, you don't have 100% clarity. You know, there's not a blood test that's going to show that you have depression or bipolar disorder. There's not a brain scan that can accurately predict that you have a mental illness and really give you that diagnosis. And that's not the fault you know, medical professionals, that's just where we are in the field of understanding right now. But I just, I've thought about this for a while, and I just think it would be so beneficial to be able to get that peace of mind when you get diagnosed and not have to second guess. Um, and, you know, like, for example, you go, you know, this is very oversimplified, but, you know, you go, and you have a sore throat, and you go to your doctor, they do a, a strep test, and you can clearly see, boom, in the results, you have strep throat. And you don't get that type of, of clarity with mental illness. And again, I know that's way oversimplified. But what I'm really excited about is for the field of psychiatry to try and pivot from strictly diagnosing from the DSM-5 and really getting objective about how we diagnose and really figuring out ways to really personalize the treatment for patients, hoping to lead to better outcomes for patients. Because right now, for example, I'm on an antidepressant. I had to just try a bunch of different ones until I found ones that worked. And oftentimes, my symptoms got worse. So then I had to start something else until I could find something that worked. And essentially, you know, I know there's some research behind it, but it felt like my doctor was kind of just throwing darts at a dartboard trying to figure out what's going to work. And again, not to fault my doctor. That's just where we are in medicine right now and understanding. We just have to find something that is going to work and try on error. So all that to say, I'm really excited about hopefully one day going to get that diagnosis and really have that peace of mind because the doctor is going to be able to show you some objective tests and use biomarkers to show you this is what you're experiencing. I think that would just be huge for the field. So getting back to the research article that I talked about, so brainwave EEG signature robustly predicted antidepressant response. So why am I sharing that? Well, I'm going to read just the story highlights here from the study. And it says, Researcher, researchers report discovery of a distinctive brainwave signature based on EEG data that robustly predicted the response of hundreds of patients to a specific antidepressant medicine and may be generally predictive of antidepressant response. Basically, they had patients, you know, use an EEG machine uh, that measures, you know, brainwave um, activity. And they were able to tell 
based on those that EEG data, how patients would respond to, I'm gonna double check here, I believe it was to Zoloft. Yes, it was to Zoloft. So they could tell based on the EEG, you know, waves of the brain, if a patient was going to respond well to Zoloft. So, you know, this is, this is very early research. You know, they, they had it on hundreds of patients, but you know, this is not definitive. They've not said, yes, 100% now get an EEG. We're going to be able to tell you what medicine we can prescribe. That's not where, where they're at. But it is very exciting because EEG is objective. It's an objective test. You know, you're going to have that data that your doctor can read and they can share with you. And they're going to be able to predict whether an antidepressant medication works. I, mean, I think that's very, very exciting. So again, I will post that research study in the show notes. If you are interested in mental health research, if you are interested in maybe learning more about ways that doctors are looking to really um, get really better understand mental illness and to really target objective data for diagnosing and treating mental illness. And I really, I recommend you check out the study, check that, check out the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation website. There's a ton of cool information on there. And as we keep moving along here on episode three, I want to switch gears to a few different topics I've been thinking about recently. Those topics are the idea of finding meaning and purpose in life and deriving some sort of meaning and purpose from suffering and just the, the topic of suffering itself, as well as adversity that one faces in life and how we can grow from those adversities that we face throughout our life. You know, just... Just light stuff here. Just real, real easy topics and conversation. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been on this journey for a while where I'm constantly searching for something. Whether that be my purpose or life's calling, uh, God. Um, I don't know what it is, but... I feel like I'm I'm just always searching for something. And I've had my fair share of adversities and trauma and depression, anxiety, and all the things I've I've discussed and I spent a lot of time you know, whether it be journaling, through reading, thinking, contemplating, speaking with a therapist, trying to wrap my brain around why some of these things have happened and what lessons or strengths can I derive from my adversities and from my suffering. So these are just some thoughts I've been having. 
And I think it's important to make the, dis- the just the distinction before I really get into this that in no way do I believe there's always like a positive takeaway and always a reason for suffering and for adversities. You know, I don't want to just spew this idea that, you know, through our depression and through, you know, bipolar disorder, some sort of mental illness, you know, there's always a reason for it. And we can always, you know, there's always something to be learned. You know, I believe sometimes Shitty things just happen and there's not an explanation for them. So I don't want people to think that, you know, I always, you know, there always has to be something good that comes from from a difficulty because that's not the case. You know, there's so many traumas and things that people experience that, you know, I, I can't begin to to make sense of them. And, you know, I personally don't you know think there is always a meaning to them. You know, that's up for the individual to decide you know i believe it was the buddhists that have this idea of radical acceptance you know accepting that something you know whatever happened happened and we are able to accept what happened and then make what we want to make of it so again this is not to speak on everybody with a mental illness or everybody that's experienced suffering adversity this these are just my opinions and how i have tried to figure out what positive takeaways i can have from the difficulties i've experienced and the reason i want to talk about that today is I'm hoping that maybe some of these books or these these teachings that I've learned from from great authors and professors and you know great spiritual writers you know maybe some of those things that I've been reading and learning about maybe I could pass that along to you all the listener and maybe given your circumstance maybe these reflections or these ways of thinking about things could benefit you. So I want to start off with the first book here. And this book has had a profound impact on me in my life. And it was actually anonymously gifted to me during my very first experience of depression. And I, Again, it was anonymously given to me. I had no idea who passed it along to me, but they left a note saying that it seems like I could get some benefit from reading this book, and they passed it along to me. So again, the book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and I've probably read it four times, I'd say. It's one of those books where I guarantee you, if you read it, you will take away something from it. And every time you do, you'll find something that you may have missed before. And why I find, or I found, and continue to find this book so impactful is because Viktor Frankl was a man who suffered through 
the world's closest thing to a living hell, and that was the concentration camps, and he spent some time at Auschwitz. And he survived those camps. And he went along, went and he became a psychiatrist and a neurologist and helped so many patients. And he came up with this type of psychotherapy called logotherapy. And logotherapy coming from the Greek word logos, which means reason or principle. So the idea of this was to carry out an existential analysis of a person. And in doing so, he wanted to help them uncover or discover the meaning in their life. And why I think that's so profound is Here's a man that you could argue endured the greatest suffering a human being has ever endured. And I don't say that to compare our sufferings because actually, as Frankel writes, and I'll read later on, um, he doesn't like that we compare our sufferings because suffering to one is maybe not suffering to the other, but any amount of suffering is in fact suffering. So that was kind of rambling there, but just the mindset of Viktor Frankl and the way in which he lived his life and the way he reframed his suffering to derive some sort of meaning is just something I have so much reverence for and, and try to aspire to be like, you know, his, his shoes are impossible to fill, but it, it's just, it's just such an inspiration to me, you know, to be in the concentration camps from 1942 to 1945. While you're in the camps, you lose both your parents, your brother, your pregnant wife. And then to overcome that tremendous loss, to be in Auschwitz, and then to live a life of, of service to other people is just, it's just incredible to me. And what I, I really love his argument that there's no, none of us will ever, ever avoid suffering, you know, in some way we're going to suffer in life. Right. But we have the ability to choose how to cope with the suffering. We have, we have that choice in some capacity. And then with that, we're able to find some sort of meaning in that, if we choose to, if we want to. And then to be able to move forward through that suffering with some renewed sense of purpose. I, I just, I just, I really love that argument and that way of thinking about suffering. And I wrote down some quotes here about a year ago, maybe a little longer. I took a trip up to the Catskill Mountains and got a nice cabin. Just kind of out in the woods, just me. Did a lot of hiking and, and reading and sightseeing. And I went through and I read this book again. 
And there's some quotes I wrote down that at the time really stood out to me. And as I'm going through some of the quotes for the podcast, they still are, they still stand out to me. And I just want to share some of those with all the listeners in hopes that, you know, maybe you can derive the same sort of inspiration and the new kind of sort of way of thinking about suffering that, that I was given through, through reading this book. So there's a few quotes. I kind of want to tie some of them together. And the first one here, he says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And this quote, this take on suffering and the last of the human freedom, as he says, just stood out to me so much because I cannot imagine imagine having that sort of thought process as you are in the concentration camps. You know, no sort of, nothing that you or I have ever learned in school or seen in videos or movies. You know, we could never fathom what that was like. And it's just amazing to me that he is able to write about those camps in this way. Okay, so he says, the last of the human freedoms, you know, you could be going through hell and back and you still have that one final freedom to choose the attitude in that set of circumstances, right? So then he says, the way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross gives him ample opportunity even under the most difficult circumstances to add a deeper meaning to his life. I love that. I love, I, I love, I love how he puts that. Even under the most difficult circumstances to add a deeper meaning to his life. And the reason I love that is because it just gives me a new sense of hope and a new way of interpreting some of the loss and trauma and experiences that I've, that I've been through and that I know so many of you have been through as well. It's that, it's that sense of hope that, he writes with, you know, even in those most difficult circumstances, we are able to add some sort of deeper meaning to our lives through that. It's like, you know, you know, I know, you know, I don't like to compare the suffering of others, but if this guy can come out of Auschwitz with that type of, you know, thought process, that type of ability to think about his suffering then that gives me a renewed sense of hope because it's attainable. 
It's something that I have the power to do. You know, we, when I was at, used to work at, at Children's Hospital and we would teach patients about, you know, cognitive distortions and how you could, you know, use, you could identify some of your cognitive distortions and call out what needed, you know, what, what could be needed to be fixed in that line of thinking to kind of realize that not every thought you have is true and there's other ways to think about things. And I think that relates here because we're not always able to see our cognitive distortions or in our own head to kind of change the way we think about things. Sometimes we need that outside perspective. So that's why, that's why I think therapy is such a, a great tool because, you know, with that quote, you know, he says, even under the most difficult circumstances can add a deeper meaning to your life, you know, maybe by working with a therapist, you know, they can give you that perspective. They can kind of teach you how that you can, you can change the way you, you, you think about these things. So I think I just, again, I, I just love, love that quote. And he's got a, a few quotes from uh, from the philosopher from Nietzsche here. I know Nietzsche is kind of a, a controversial figure, and there's a lot of things in his his writings I don't I don't really agree with. But he's got a few quotes from him that I really love, and that really I think adds to his argument, adds to Frankel's argument. Uh, two of them here. So he says. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Again, if you have that that sense of that sense of purpose, that that suffering that you're enduring, you can continue to overcome because you have that 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 why to to keep moving forward to keep fighting that's what you know what that's that that sense of hope is so so important and the second quote from nietzsche that he references is that which does not kill me makes me stronger for that before for then in a, in a Kanye west song stronger I, I didn't realize that he was qu quoting nietzsche at the time of that song but i like that I like that which does not kill me makes me stronger. You know, every every moment of suffering and struggle that you've endured up into this point, you've survived. You've overcame it. Maybe you're in the process of overcoming it. And you're still here. You survived it. And guess what? That has made you a stronger more resilient person and with that i think it's a good segue into the next section of the podcast this next author that i have been reading uh he's got a book called the happiness hypothesis and in one of his chapters he discusses adversity and sort of the benefits of adversity and, and how we can use adversity and suffering and, and struggle to our advantage 
to become more resilient people. So we're gonna take a look at that here. So the author here, Jonathan Haidt, is a professor of ethical leadership at New York University. He's also a social psychologist. And he starts off in chapter seven of his book. It's called The Uses of Adversity. And he's got a quote here. Right at the beginning, right off the rip, he says, when heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds so as to stimulate his mind and harden his nature. Then he follows that bombshell of a quote up with, wouldn't you know it, Nietzsche's quote that Frankl writes about, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So, in this chapter, The Uses for Adversity, Height discusses, There's a large body of research, he says, that shows that although traumas, crises, and tragedies come in a thousand forms, people can sometimes benefit from them in three primary ways. Now, again, we need to be careful here when we use words like trauma and tragedies and talk about benefits coming from them because... Of course, there's so many tragedies and, and traumas that happen for no rhyme or reason. And there's no reason to, you know, glorify those things and take anything away from the victims here. So I think it's very important to tread lightly around that. But the point of this chapter is to show how in some circumstances, some adversities there is value in adversity and in some sort of struggle. So he says, he argues, the first benefit is that rising to a challenge reveals your hidden abilities and seeing these abilities changes your self-concept. You know, if you live, if you've lived a sheltered life, you've lived a life where you've never faced any sort of obstacles or adversity, you never had to struggle for anything. Everything was always given to you. You're not pushed. You don't have to grind, right? You're not going to really know what you're capable of. Because you really don't know what you're capable of until your back's up against the wall. And you have one option. And that is through. So he says... How can adversity be beneficial? Well, you're going to learn a lot, a lot about yourself. You're going to you're going to show yourself that you are a lot stronger, a lot more resilient than you ever thought possible. And that's going to benefit you. Height goes on to write, he says, one of the most common lessons people draw from bereavement or trauma is that they are much stronger than they realized. And this new appreciation of their strength then gives them confidence to face future challenges. 
They are not just confabulating a silver lining to wrap around a dark cloud. People have suffered through battle, rape, concentration camps, or traumatic personal losses often seem to be inoculated against future stress. They recover more quickly, in part because they know that they can cope. Religious leaders have often pointed to exactly this benefit of suffering. As Paul said in his letter to the Romans, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. More recently, the Dalai Lama said, the person who has had more experience of hardships can stand more firmly in the face of problems than the person who has never experienced suffering. From this angle, then some suffering can be a good life lesson. The second class of benefit concerns relationships. Adversity is a filter. When a person is diagnosed with cancer or a couple loses a child, some friends and family members rise to the occasion and look for any way they can to express support or to be helpful. Others turn away, perhaps unsure of what to say or unable to overcome their own discomfort with the situation. But adversity doesn't just separate the fair weather friends from the true. It strengthens relationships and it opens people's hearts to one another. We often develop love for those we care for, and we usually feel love and gratitude toward those who cared for us in the time of need. In a large study of bereavement, Susan Nolan Hoxima and her colleagues at Stanford University found that one of the most common effects of losing a loved one was that the bereaved had a greater appreciation of and tolerance for the other people in his or her life. A woman in the study whose partner had died of cancer explained, the loss enhanced my relationship with other people because I realized that time is so important and you can waste so much effort on small, insignificant events or feelings. I want to pause from continuing reading the chapter here to just speak on that second point that Hype makes. Just from my own experience with loss this past year and my family's experience with it, we can definitely relate to the point he makes when he says that there's something about bereaving and loss that oftentimes brings people closer and sometimes it can even alter your pers- perspective on you know, what really is important and what details and things in life are just insignificant and not worth the worry about. And through the loss of my uncle, I've definitely noticed that our family has really rallied together, has made it more of a priority to to reach out to one, one another, text each other, check in on each other, visit each other. And at least I know in my own way of of thinking that after losing our uncle, I have an even greater appreciation for my siblings, for my parents, my family than I had before, just because you realize how precious life is and how quickly in an instant it can be over. You know, the Stoic philosophers have this phrase, memento mori, you know, remember remember death. Remember that we all are mortal. We all will die at some point. 
So really keep your priorities in line. Really remember what's truly important. Remember that we all have a finite time here. And yeah, through the through the grieving, through the bereavement process, and I definitely can relate to what Height writes about and how it can draw people closer. And, you know, that's not to say you, it's not easy. It's not because it is, it's grief and everybody grieves in different ways and it is incredibly challenging and just emotionally exhausting. And But there are, there are certain aspects that Height writes about where people do have a tendency to, to draw closer to one another and to really identify what truly is important in life. The third common benefit of adversity that Height points out is that trauma changes priorities and philosophies toward the present and towards other people. You know, we've all heard the phrase, live each day to the fullest. And he goes on to write in the chapter, he says, diagnosis of cancer is often described in retrospect as a wake-up call, a reality check, or a turning point. Many people consider changing careers or reducing the time they spend at work. The reality that people often wake up to is that life is a gift that they have been taking for granted and that people matter more than money. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol captures a deep truth about the effects of facing mortality. A few minutes with the ghost of Christmas yet to come convert Scrooge, the ultimate miserer, into a generous man who takes delight in his family, his employees, and the strangers he passes on the street. What Height says next, I love that he calls this out. He says, I don't want to celebrate suffering, prescribe it for everyone, or minimize the moral imperative to reduce where we can. I don't want to ignore the pain that ripples out from each diagnosis of cancer, mental illness, spreading fear along lines of kinship and friendship. I want only to make the point that suffering is not always all bad for all people. There is usually some good mixed in with the bad, and those who find it have found something precious, a key to moral and spiritual development. As Shakespeare wrote, sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And Hyatt ends his chapter on the uses of adversity by saying, for adversity to be maximally beneficial, it, ha- it should happen at the right time to the right people, those with the social and psychological resources to rise to challenges and find benefits and to the right degree, not so severe as to cause PTSD. Each life course is so unpredictable that we can never know whether a particular setback will be beneficial to a particular person in the long run. He concludes the chapter that way. I love my time reading that chapter on the uses of adversity because I love this idea that not every trauma or every adversity or every setback in our life has this complete control over us. So that concludes the just brief introductions into the Two books, both Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl 
and the happiness hypothesis finding modern truth in ancient wisdom by jonathan height and i hope you guys were able to get a new perspective on this idea of suffering and some of the potential positive benefits of adversity and facing challenges I just want to end the episode by sharing my favorite poem here. It's called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud, Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This has been episode three of the Mind Mission Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter at Mind Mission Ohio or by visiting our website at www.mindmissionohio.org. We'd love to have you join our mission of promoting mental health awareness through fitness and adventure, fostering community, and providing resources. We will be posting updates on our social and our website soon. We're going to post the bios of all of our board of directors, as well as information about our upcoming first ever exercise-based resiliency groups free to the community. So you don't want to miss that. Check that out. We will be posting updates soon, as I mentioned. So again, thank you so much for tuning in to episode three. And remember... You are loved, there is always hope, and your life has value. Until next time.